John, my night fishing experience on the fly is limited, of course. Uh, I don't do guided night trips at all, but I have kept anglers on the water after dark and had them out before daylight as well. I have personally fished at night using dry flies in Michigan on the hex hatch, mm-hmm. but I know a light is needed in some cases and at some times, but mostly, you know, for me, it's just where to find the gravel bar and the boat ramp and that sort of thing. So, but for you, it's probably a little different when you're preparing for night fishing. I guess the question to start out with be, would be what equipment do you use to make sure that the anglers have a good trip, but most importantly, kind of clue us in on where you, where and how far you expect them to cast and how you expect them to understand where and how far to cast. Okay. So uh, here on Arkansas's White River and also the North Fork, we uh, primarily fish from a drift boat. And so um, all the things go along with drift boat fishing. It's not that much different from daytime and nighttime. Uh, Obviously uh, we have headlamps and things like that. And that the awesome part of the question is ranging customers at night. And this, uh, it, it took a couple of years. It, it was kind of uh, uh, testing theories because there wasn't a lot of books. There was, there was no roadmap on how to be successful by fishing the White River by drift boat. There's only been a few other people that I know that started doing it around the same time. So what we quickly found out while we were fishing at night, so we started with a, you know seven and eight weights with a standard weight forward line and seven to eight foot a leader system. And what was happening is the standard weight forward line is like 37 foot head and the rest is running line. And so I had guys that were really good casters and, you know, they run out 70, 80 feet of line. And so what we do is we're floating down river, obviously bow facing downstream. I have my customers cast out at an angle towards the bank and the slow, steady strip. When the fly hits the water, I slow the boat down a little bit and it puts a swing in the pattern. So the goal is like to cast out like say if you start from you know starboard side right and you cast towards the bank and the fly hits the water i slow the boat down and the the, the goal is to get the fly out in front of the boat and then the best thing is to have a, a, an angler that can cast offhand as well so you get them to cast you know one side starboard side right the next cast would be uh, port side left but with that same it, it's very it's very consistent the presentation and so what we quickly found out is we were blowing fish up right up in front of the boat, like five, 10 feet from the boat. And what was happening is that all the belly of the line was, had been stripped past the rod tip. And so they'd have to go through like seven to, you know, five to seven, eight false casts to get that, get enough belly or the head past the rod tip where the rod would actually load and make a decent cast. And so, um, what was happening was after three or four hours, guys were getting fatigued right? because it's nighttime. We can't see anywhere. And so we started messing around with different lines and uh, a friend of mine from Michigan recommended a switch rod line integral and, um, which had like a 24 to 25 foot head. And so what that enabled us to do is to, as you strip in with, with these short tapered lines, short belly lines, the, the change of diameter from the running line, to the head is, is pretty significant. You can feel it in the dark. Mm, yeah. And so, so what we got people doing was stripping in to feel the diameter change in the fly line. At that point, 
the it's right you're ready to cast. I mean, the rod is ready to pick up and single or double haul, you know, fifty to sixty feet. Like I said, the the main goal was, was to try to stop people from getting fatigued. And so we went, like I said, we went to like the short belly tapers or like fast tapers and we got uh, started training uh, the angler to feel the, the uh, diameter change in the line. And then in order to gauge how far they're casting, we got them doing a very consistent strip. So once you cast, your fly hits the water and, you know, obviously you, ha you have, uh, you have your line in between like your trigger finger, your second finger where you hold the rod. So I got people like bringing their left or right arm up, grabbing the line right, right below their finger and then doing a full strip, which is almost two feet. In other words, I don't know if you can see my hand, but like going up to, to, the, to the trigger finger and doing a complete strip. So where like you hinge your elbow towards pointing down towards the water. And it's right around, from most angles, it's about two feet. So once we guys got these guys casting out, I caught, started, I taught them to count their strips mm. and I would count them too. And so let's say a uh, typical situation. So I use like a, a, a wolf bass taper. That's a really super good line, creates a lot of energy. And so once I got them counting, they would also know how far they're casting. So let's say once you make a cast, you do that very uh, regimented strip until they feel the point of, of the belt where the belly changes, where the diameter changes on the line. From that point, if you're fishing a nine foot rod with a 25 foot head, there's like seven feet of that, of that belly in between your finger and the tip of the rod. Then there's like another 12 on the outside. And then, you know, seven feet a liter. So if, if my angler cast and he stripped in 20 times, I know that that's, he just, pulled in 40 feet of running line and then i add to his finger then i add the 20 25 24 to 26 foot head plus the leader system so i know reaching out 70 feet and so the cool thing was getting the customers to do that because like they could range themselves right. and they don't have to worry about it so the worst thing at night is erratic casting so at least in my boat and how i think you know the, the more reg it's, it's, it's very consistent presentation there's not a lot of there's not a lot of room to leave the reservation and, and it's, it's proven very consistent and, and so keeping in mind that arkansas white river is a massive habitat so some guys that fish smaller streams might not have a bit availability they might they might have a, a a different presentation but that's basically how we learn to range customers and keep everybody on the same page because that way, if I, if I, so if I get my customers to say, okay, I want you to cast the same amount, same amount of, of power. And, and so if I get them consistently throwing, you know, 50, 60 feet, then I can gauge the bank and, and keep them at, out, of, out of the lumber, so to speak. Right. We call it squirrel hunting. If you get cl too close to the bank and your guys are catching the trees, especially at night, you know, it's not a lot of fun to, to get out and try to stand up on top of the core and, and dig a, you know, a 20 foot streamer you know, <laughs> out of the wood pile. And I start teasing her. I'm like, well, you know, if you just, if you're going to keep doing this, we got to get you a uh, squirrel license for the state of Arkansas. Cause it's, cause it's a citation. <laughs> just <Yes>. joking. <laughs> so would, would folks need to buy a new, new line and that sort of thing to come and fish at night or do y'all supply that? Well, 
Well, I'll put it to you this way. Most of the guys that have come back a second time have uh, re-rigged their line. Right. You know, they, uh, I was like, well, hey, we'll, we'll save this line. You know what? Buy, buy an extra spool. Save your, you know, your typical weight forward line for a saltwater application or a, uh, you know, maybe, you know, stripers or, or something yeah, else. Right. But the short, the short belly tapers are, 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 are really awesome. Um, they really turn over the bigger flies. Yeah. You know, anything, anything with deer hair, obviously, you know, you have to, you have to upgrade your leader system to transfer the energy. And, uh, that's, what's cool about these lines are you really, some of the guys like to fish deer hair, um, uh, with some of the synthetic materials and stuff like that, we can get much better distance than, than deer hair. But, you know, if you like to fish the, um, the iconic, you know, mouse patterns, you know, like the Whitlock patterns and stuff like that, you, you know, you need to, uh, you have a pretty uh, aggressive line and leader system, in my yeah, opinion. Right. To be able to turn that stuff over, yeah. That makes total sense. Well, let's go ahead and kick off this show with the introduction then. So from high atop the world headquarters of Southeastern Fly, this is a Southeastern Fly podcast. Feel free to share the podcast with your friends and your fishing partners. If you found value in this episode and want to give back, just drop by the Southeastern Fly store at southeasternfly.com and simply purchase a hat or a shirt. So who is our guest today on Southeastern Fly? He is, uh, he is well known as a nighttime angler. You can find him at Straight Out of Cotter, Arkansas, and Flies and Guides Fly Shop on the White River and North Fork Rivers, and tonight from Newman's Lodge on the White River. Please welcome to the podcast, John Holston. John, thanks for stopping by. Thanks, David. It's a pleasure to be here. I know we have mutual friends, and um, actually, Corey was just down. This yeah, past weekend, yeah. and, and uh, so I had to, you know, I had to, you know, thank him for uh, for um, hooking us up, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, hopefully you got Corey straightened out. Hopefully, 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 whip some wisdom into him. <laughs> so, so <laughs> we all, you know, you were just talking about flies, mouth patterns, bigger flies, that sort of thing. We've all got our favorite flies that we have for streamers and for nymphs and dries and all that stuff. So, so night, but night fishing, that's a little different game. I've done it a couple different ways. Now I'll just take a second here and talk about the couple different ways I've done it. I've done it with streamers, obviously, and caught some fish, nothing. I, I really never have caught, you know, like that 30 incher or super big fair 40 pounder, whatever, any, nothing big, you know, nothing huge. Uh, but I also haven't probably given it its due diligence like I should. Uh, now, on the flip side of that, I had an in interesting experience on the uh, fishing the hex hatch in Michigan that I just kind of stumbled into. And I admit that I didn't plan anything. I just was up there and decided I wanted to fish. And it just happened to be during the hex hatch. And at that time, it was we fished. I guess we started about two o'clock, three o'clock in the afternoon, something like that, maybe four. And it went into night, so we threw streamers early during the day in the evening, and then we stopped and ate, smoked a big old fat cigar, and then uh, it sounded like, and I always say this, it sounded like somebody started throwing bowling balls in the water. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and what it was was big brown trout coming up to eat uh, spent hex. That's what that was all about. Uh, yep. And we fished into the night, and one of the things that that uh, Evan uh, from uh, the Northern Angler, he was he was a guy that I was working with, 
And right. one of the things that I asked him was, how am I going to know on a dry fly? How am I going to know if I, if I get a hit? That's one thing, of course. But how am I going to know how, fa- how far to cast? How am I going to know all that stuff? And he said to me, you're just going to know. <laughs> that was, at first I thought, well, that's not helpful. But in the end, it really was helpful. I just kind of knew. You know, he would call out the shots, uh, you know, 10 o'clock, about 40 feet. And I was somehow, and I don't know how, I still to this day don't know how, but I would just, I would catch fish. But the bugs were big and, you know, that sort of thing. But now I flip that and say that I fished at night with streamers uh, around here. And there's still one or two places I really want to get to and probably will uh, in the next, hopefully this year. I say it every year and, and just end up running out of time uh, during the summer. But, you know, counting down is important and making sure you got the right lines. Like you were just talking about the right lines. Make sure you got the right presentation. But let's talk flies too. Uh, because I, I, we tied some mouse patterns. We tied some deceivers, double deceivers, stuff like that. We've tied, you know, all you know, several, several different things. I won't go into every one of them, but what do you look for in your fly patterns for catching those, those, those trophy trout? We would, we wouldn't go out at night if we didn't think we would catch that trophy trout. What are you looking for in your fly patterns for, for fishing? At so night? I'd like to break this down into uh, three categories. One would be subsurface. I mean, one would be subsurface on the bottom. The other one would be mid-column, and the other one would be the surface. And so, you know, me, I'm a bit, I love surface heats. You know, there's, there's, there's nothing cooler than be out floating the river, and, you know, we're, we're, we're doing that presentation that we were talking about, you know, casting out 10 o'clock, the swing. And depending on moon phase, you, you can see your pat, You can see the, you know, the signature of the pattern on the surface and just, and just have a fish aggressively blow up on it i mean that's that's what drives us to the river at least yes. me personally yes and then but unfortunately sometimes especially on waxing moons the fish they're not comfortable right on the surface but if, if you put something just below the surface you know four inches below the surface you know you, you'll get the eats and then i hope i don't offend all the guys that like to fish wet flies and bottom flies during the night but that's my least favorite and just because you just don't get that visceral, you know, you'll get that that visceral experience where you know you see the fish come out of the water and stuff like that. So with that being said, so when we're fishing the surface patterns, we can go anywhere from like the Morse mouse patterns, master splinters, any of the foam patterns. But uh, you know, as I would like to think, is that my fly selection here over the last ten to twelve years uh, has evolved. Any of the surface patterns I'm, I'm fishing now have a, a hook that's set, that's fixed up. And so I'm, I'm basically leaving like the main hook off and putting like an octopus hook off the, off the tail with either if you want to do it with hard mono or braid and then covering it with what, what they use to insulate wires with heat shrink. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so what we can do is, is, is we slip, tie the, you know, put the heat shrink on, tie the hook. Cinch it to the body and then heat the heat shrink up with a lighter, and that keeps the hook facing up. And the reason I did that because occasionally, when you were talking about the hex hats, sometimes when these fish are like, mm, they're not really aggressive, they'll sip it like a hex or a frog or a mouse. 
Right. You know, and so like they, they would eat it like they, they eat a mayfly and, and maybe on two occasions, two or three occasions, you know, we hooked a fish uh, at the base of the tongue. It's an unfortunate conversation to have, but I think I feel like it needs it's one that needs to be had. Yeah, and right. so once once we started inverting that hook and, and having the, the trailer hook face up, we eliminated the base of the base of the tongue hookups because it, it can I'm not saying it's always lethal, but it can be lethal. And so, so, you, so let me stop you right there. So you're using that heat shrink to make sure the point of the hook is up yes. in the air, not, not down in the water column, but it's pointed right. up in the air. Okay, go ahead. So, right, yeah, we're trying, we're trying to avoid the, the back of the throat hookups, the right. back of the tongue. Cause, cause like I said, they will hemorrhage and it, yeah. it, it like I said, it, it's, it, it, it's far and few in between, but it's something that, you know, after the second time, it really had to go to the, uh, you know, you know, investigate the thought process of, of uh, what we were fishing. Mm-hmm. And so moving on from there, if, uh, if we're floating and we're getting these like subtle eats and the fish aren't really excited, I'll, I'll pull the foam and, and the Morris mice off and go right to a double deceiver, the standard double deceiver. You know, I, I've downsized the hooks. Uh, I think initially you started with like the two ot or one ots and stuff like what one ot with like a two in the back. And, um, we're, we're missing a lot of fish because, you know, the bigger fish, it's a heavy jawbone structure. It's a big hook. It's got a wide diameter, and it, it's just hard to get a purchase, hard to get penetration. So then we drop down to, like, to size twos and fours, and, like, the hookup ratio went up. You know, I, I think, like, specifically, like, the B10 Stingers mm-hmm. um, or Laser Sharp, thin diameter, it's a good hook. And, um, and so that, that's kind of how that evolved. And then, uh, when we, you know, if that's not working out, I know that obviously this, this is a situation that we encountered during the heavier moon phases as we approach the full moon is when we start going down to, you know, uh, some of Kelly's patterns, the painted envy, you know, the, any, any weighted patterns that we get down. Okay. And so yeah. that, at that point, we're just basically scratching the bottom, like the circus painted, the painted envy. Boogeyman. But, all those. So like I said, once we get to the bottom, the uh, the presentation slows real down because the fish aren't happy. They don't want to move. But if you drag something and scratch the bottom with tungsten, you're going to get their attention. It's going to aggravate them. And, uh, you know, those are the nights, you know, oddly enough, some of the biggest fish that we've caught here at night have been on like one, one fish nights. We only got, we've cast for eight hours. We only got one eat and it winds up being a, you know, a 30 to 36 inch fish. Yeah. So. That's that's why I tell my customers. There's nothing worse than floating down a river. Everyone's pumped up. Everyone, you know, we want we want to see the brown trout, and they're just they're not there, you know. And so, like after like three or four hours, the morale gets low. I start showing the pictures. Like here, this is a one fish <laughs> night. This is this is seven hours. We got one eat all night. It's just something that you got to be you have to be ready for. Yeah. And then going back to the streamers, as far like as, as color selection, I really you know it, it's. I can't tell a difference. I've fished every combination of colors that you can imagine on a streamer with exception to pink. For some reason, it's a game changer for me. Huh. You know, cause I, I, I get to look from people like, okay, we haven't, we haven't moved the fish in two hours. Like you want to consider changing the fly. And me, I'm like, I like to fish the fly with confidence. And my thought pattern is like, mm, well, we're just, we need a feeding cycle to show up and they're, they're not in a feeding cycle. You know, that's like, you know, someone offering you a cheeseburger after you just ate, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I would after say Thanksgiving pink, dinner, 
Yeah, the pink phone, the pink double receivers. For some reason, it just you know it just might be a thing. It might be coincidence, but a majority of the times we're like, mm, I'd go, "Where's my lucky go-to?" It would be pink. And when I do that, it's tough, <laughs> you know. Huh. Okay. But you know, so the standard colors, you know, brown and yellow is really productive at night. Brown and yellow, olive and yellow, you know, black with red flash that works real well. Cotton can the cotton candy deceiver, especially especially in the gravel. So we we basically have two places where we target fish here. One are like the deep limestone channels, actually three. So um, you know, there's ob- obviously structure, rocks, boulders, logs. Uh, then you have like, limestone channels, and then you have the gravel. And so uh, I think the lighter the colors in the gravel, because they do gravel hunt. There's fish will lay down in the deep channels during the daylight, and once the sun drops down, they move into the gravel to feed, and that's where the cotton candy works out. Let's do this, John. Let's take a break here, and when we come mm-hmm. back, I want to talk more about that, uh, about where the fish might be at night. So let's take a quick break here, and then we'll be right back. Jordan Red at Red's Flies is a listener and a friend of the Southeastern Fly Podcast. Jordan's patterns are tested extensively here in the Southeast and work all around the country. Testing each pattern ensures you have the best opportunity to increase your catch rate while you're on the water. Red's Flies carries hundreds of patterns, including standard nymphs and Euro nymphs tailwater and freestone dry flies and a very nice assortment of streamer patterns red flies is a small family-owned business and they give back to the community by donating 10 percent of their profits to the chattahoochee river keepers trout unlimited bonefish tarpon trust and other conservation organizations who support our southern waters go to www.redsflies.com and spell reds with two d's remember they offer free shipping on orders of 50 dollars or more and if you enter the code s-e-f-l-y at checkout you'll receive an additional 15% off your order. That's redsflies.com and tell them you heard it on the Southeastern Five podcast. All right, we're back. So you were starting to get on uh, where the fish post up and that sort of thing. So, and that's one of the things that I think that folks really need to know during the day is you need to understand what the section of river is you're fishing, you know, especially if you're trying to, to do night fishing on your own, you need to understand that piece of it, where, what, what section of my river am I fishing and what does it look like and where should I be more importantly, where should I not be? And then you marry that together with, uh, with, with, with which is always my, one of my favorite sayings when I'm, I'm guiding people is fish where they are, not where they ain't. So, and, and, our seasoned anglers can they can find those fish during the day and especially after fishing the river over and over and over and over. And one of the things that we put this question out on the on the uh, Facebook podcast by Southeastern Fly Facebook group, and Jeff came back and asked uh, ask how we can identify the difference between where the fish post up to feed between day versus night. So I think that. You started into that, and I want to kind of swing back to that a little bit. So let's talk about where they feed during during the day versus where they feed at night, John. Okay, so you know the White River is a tailwater, and um, and so uh, river levels are constantly changing here, and so where the fish are during the day in high water, low water, and where they go at night. Mm-mm. 
So wherever you see brown trout during the daytime, where I personally see brown trout, like say I'm doing a day float, or like, let's say we started the started to float early, we're gonna try to get some fish in the boat before the sun goes down. Uh, you know, I'm looking where the brown trout are during the daytime, and wherever I see them, I look upstream because they go whether it's low water or high water, they go upstream to feed. And generally, there's some type of feeding tool there, a feeding, a, some type of subsurface structure that attracts them there. I think I can, I think I can uh, expand on that just a little bit because we, we've done some early, really early morning floats, like there before daylight, fish up in through daylight. And you're right, they are the fish are more up in some type of feeding structure, whether that be a gravel bar, uh, a shoal. Uh, maybe some big rocks, maybe logs, something like that. They're usually upstream. That's interesting. They're usually upstream of where they are, you know, in the heat of the day. So I think, I think that we're kind of, we're kind of thinking along the same lines there. Definitely. Yep. So like, just, just to put it in the context where we're at now with, with the way river conditions are now, uh, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of water in both salts dam. They're kind of holding the generation back, maybe a couple pulses, you know, maybe a pulse in the morning, then, you know, they'll knock it back. They'll knock the generation back down and then you know, we'll get a two hour pulse in the evening. And so in the lower water, the, the dominant fish are, I mean, they're, they're down in the limestone channels. They're in places where people don't, where, where they're not to be seen. Then once the sun goes down, these fish move up and moving into like, They'll leave like a deep limestone run and push fish up in the gravel. And one of the cool things about the White River, I had a conversation with Matt Sipinski on this topic when he was uh, writing Nexus, is that this, this river is so massive and it, and it resembles a tidal fishery because the water levels are constantly going up and down. And that, so what we see here is these fish travel in wolf packs or what Matt calls uh, clanning, where it's not uncommon to see three or four fish at nighttime of like size whether it be three fish between 20 and 22 or 20 and 20, 24 and 26. I mean, I, you know, fish hunting like, and like with like sizes, you never see like small fish hunting with big, fish. <laughs> it doesn't work out well for the little fish. Right. <laughs> so, but that's, that's something I see, see here. And, and so, uh, and so I'm sure we've heard this is like, whether it's a lake or a river, if, if you have, you know, a specific part of the structure, a structure where there's a big, where a big fish is, and somebody takes them out of there, another big fish moves in. Right. But what we see here, as the sun goes, let's say, take, take a, t- a typical stretch of river that, let's say, a certain structure is like three quarters of a mile long. There'll be, you know, a dominant fish right below the shoals. There'll be a dominant fish midway, and there'll be a dominant fish, you know, at, at the end, usually where the tail out is. So what I see personally here is when the sun goes down, you know, the fish, the, the fish that's in the, at the tail out will start moving up. He'll hook up with the fish in, in mid column or, or mid structure. And then they'll hook up with the third fish at the bottom of the shoals. And those three fish will, will they'll, they'll find out where the rainbow fish are potted up and they'll run them into skinny water. You know, and that's where we get our most aggressive eats. So if we get ourselves in that situation, you know, where you're presenting a fly to, you know, three fish, four seconds before they, before they saw the fly, their body's trying to push fish around, trying to get something to eat. But once they see the fly, it's every fish for themselves. That's where we get, like, 
the really super aggressive blow ups where they come out of the water and stuff like that. That's almost but, um, right there. That's so, almost a gimme right there, isn't it? To where you get them yeah, in competition yeah. for the same the competition for the food. Yeah, yeah, same food. Yeah. But no, that's a really good question. I think it's, it's probably you know one of the most very important question regarding like you know fly fishing at night, and um, it's just uh, and that's you know what you learn the best from floating the daytime and, and marking these fish, and like I said, you know. As I started out, like when I see big fish, I'm looking up. And once I see them, I'm looking upstream to see what type of feeding tool that that they're going to use. Is it a gravel bar? Is it uh, you know, is is it a creek mouth? Just from floating early mornings and even in late evenings, like real late, uh, probably later than it should be out there. I do find that they that, that it's exactly like you say. They come up out of those deep holes and they come up to to feed another thing. And I've said this for, for years is don't be afraid to fish for big fish around where folks are cleaning fish, you know, like at the takeout. Absolutely. Yeah. That's an easy meal for them. I've always felt like, okay, that's an easy meal. And you can see them prowl, start to prowl around in that area right before dark. They'll start coming up out of some of the holes. And I think I've got a couple of holes and, and I'm not going to spill the beans here, but there's a couple of holes I have in mind where, they come up out of those holes onto the shoals where somebody might clean a fish and you know, that's easy meals right there. That's, that's about the best way to say so, that. I don't, I don't know if folks are know this, but there, there is commercial uh, spin fishing operations here and that the guides go out at seven thirty. they come back, they have a cleaning station. All the guides take their fish to the cleaning station. They're playing the trout, you know, throwing the carcasses in with the liver and the oils and stuff like that. And that maybe I've timed this stuff. I, I mean, I've timed it from like a specific resort down to like a big hole below Bruce Creek Shoal. So if we take this in consideration, at 4:30 they're dumping the trout carcasses in this big hole, you know, White Hole, Bruce Creek Shoal, Stetson's Hole. You know, specifically Stetson's Hole is like maybe two miles downstream, and then the average river flow is two miles an hour. It takes those from the time that they drop the carcass and it takes about an hour and a half. And I mean, what you see coming out of these holes is just, I mean, 36 inch and bigger. I just like incredibly huge fish. I mean, they're dinosaurs, but they're also very smart. They're scent locked. And most of these fish are females <clears throat> that I've seen, but you know, what happens is they become Pavlov's dog, <laughs> so to speak, you know? And so now now the, the sun's, dropping at like five o'clock they're moving much earlier you know they, they they won't dare come up in the daylight they'll wait and wait but like as soon as the day as soon as the sun drops they're beeline into the trip to uh these fish cleaning stations right and uh, you know that's you know that's honestly you know it's a staple for some fish and that's how they get big well if you if you think about that and, and let's say even if you have doubts about what john's saying right now let's just say that he's right that they're cleaning fish and those fish are coming and eating every three days if you think about what they're eating uh number one it's a free meal so i don't have to expend much energy to get that meal i've get okay. those fish oils like he's talking about that's 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 some calories if you will uh there's some fat in there and then there's some bones yeah. so you you eat that calcium as a fish, that fish eats that calcium. Oh. And those are the things that make fish grow 
whether it's alive or dead, I don't think that it, it really matters. I mean, maybe alive tastes a little better. I don't know. But what what he's saying here is those fish are coming up out of that hole and eating something that makes them grow. Therefore, they're going to grow and get bigger. Uh, and then you just have to, you know, you just have to take your best shot in transition there and, and hope that you're there at the right time and all that. But but anytime a fish can eat another fish, they're going to get bigger, quicker. But that, that's the other thing. I've learned so much. I've been here, you know, 18 years, and um, I, I was pretty, pretty, pretty solid uh, trout fisherman before I got here. Just, uh, just what we're talking about. There's so much to learn here. It, it, like what I've learned is like how well these fish hunt by scent. Yeah. And uh, this actually goes to, like sculpin patterns. Sculpins like like eels are super slimy, and when this when the river comes up, the sculpin migrate. And whenever it goes down, they go back down. So every time that they move from underneath the rocks, it scrapes that, you know, that protective slime layer off. And it's not very soluble. And what it does is it travels downstream in globules, and the fish pick it up, and the, the brown trout pick it up. And, yeah, it's pretty cool. Pretty cool thing. I was, uh, I was fishing at Calico Rock one time, and we were, we were bringing the boat out. And there were a couple guys fishing there with sculpins. And they went right above and anybody that's fished at Calico Rock knows that that's pretty good ways downstream, but they went up just below, there was a catch and release area there at the time. I don't know if it's still there or not, but there's also a big bend. Yes. They go right up at that bend and drop those. I asked them, I said, where are you taking those sculpins? Cause they were catching them. They were actually catching them on a little fishing rod with, with some kind of bait and putting them in a bucket. Just a couple folks that probably yeah. live there. And they said, we're going to take them up there to the bend and we're going to fish that bend. I was like, huh. And we were taking the boat out. So it was probably six in the afternoon, something like that. So they must have known that, all right, those fish are going to come up on this shoal at the bend, on the inside of the bend, and they were going to fish them there. So, yeah, totally, totally. Uh, and that's a great fly pattern to use over there, too, if you're going to fish streamers, is it some type of sculpin type pattern. Yeah. Air quotes here. Yeah. You know, a zoo cougar. There's there's a ton of ton of sculpted patterns. Yeah. So um, that was that was the Monkey Island catch and release. Uh huh. Above Calico. Yeah. And so when when um when they added the uh, catch and release to the uh to the Norfolk River, the Ackerman area, they took away the catch and release at at Monkey Island and then added it to the uh, Norfolk Tailwater. Okay. So it's, it's not a, it's it's not a catch and release anymore. But it is really awesome fishing. You notice, like the farther you get down river, the longer the, the long gravel runs are. Yes. But like yeah, the deep structures, like where you're talking about. Yeah, I've saw I've seen awesome fish there. Yeah, I mean, we some, caught awesome smallmouth. Yeah. We just you know one day we just ran up to there and just basically almost at the speed of a troll, and just I sat on the front mm -hmm. of the boat and just there's some huge. Huge fish from there on up, a pretty good ways. Uh, when when where that kind of bend starts there, up into the, up and past the um, the catch the old catch. I guess that'd be the old catch. I'm starting mm -hmm. to date myself, John. That I've it's been it's been a minute since I've been up there. Uh, but yeah, right. I'm starting to date myself. And we were, you know, we fished. I actually fished some soft tackles across that that one inside bend and caught a caught some nice fish on just a soft tackle, little bitty soft tackles too. Just for the heck of it, you know, we were we were nymph fishing and, and terrestrial fishing. I thought I'm gonna throw a soft tackle on here and 
and just swing through this bend and we just anchored up and we caught we caught some nice fish even on a soft tackle which normally feels like it produces a little smaller fish but you know we were using a little bit lighter rods probably than we probably should have been okay so so talking about rods let's go back to that you mentioned this early on but we all kind of like our gear I think there's a lot of gear nuts out there. I know I've been in and out of that phase and back in it several different mm-hmm. times. <laughs> every time I every time I decide, oh, I want to fish for saltwater, I'd go out and get new rods and reels and lines and then finally settle into something. And I guess I need a mentor in some of those ways. But if if somebody was going to take up night fishing, let's just talk about that. Give us some information on rods and reels and terminal tackle. But we also, I think, probably include in that some safety items uh, for it. seeing is a big thing for me. So if you can include something that like that, that'd be fantastic. So um, as far as rods, as far as brands, me personally, I'm a Winston guy. It's mm-hmm. just, it's just, it's what makes me happy. You know, and everyone has their own specific brand that they like, but um, a medium fast rod, seven to eight weight. And as far as reels, you know, going since we fished from a drift boat, I mean, I don't think I've ever had a fish put us into our backing on a drift boat because, you know, nine percent of the time we can stay right on top of the fish. Right. You know, so someone, I, I, I would never, I would never tell someone that to spend a thousand dollars on the rod to be successful. I would ne- never tell anyone that to spend four hundred dollars on a reel to be success, successful. But I will say they have to spend. You have to get a quality fly line. I, I think that. The line and your leader system is as or more important than the rods and reels. Right. I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's not necessary to spend fourteen hundred dollars on a rod reel combo to be successful. You know, there's plenty of there's plenty of um, you know, midline rod companies, TFO, Douglas is a really good rod company. We sell them out of the shop, and and they they're really at price point. They're really good rods, like I said, and, and like like I said, uh, TFO. So you can spend as little or as much on a rod as you want to. The reel, if you're in a drift boat, the drag is semi important but not critical because you can stay on top of them. And the line is is obviously the important thing. If you go back to what you said at the first, that you cast out, you swing, you strip. You want something that will turn that fly over pretty quick because you've stripped till you're within five, 10 feet of the boat uh, in front. But I guess one of my questions would be, what is what about leaders and tippet? I see a lot of folks wanting to use tippet that's too small for streamers uh, during the day I'm talking about. But what about tippet at night? So I generally build a leader system down from 40 to 15 to 20 pounds and maybe three foot sections. The one thing I, I have learned that any of the tip, any of the like zero action stuff like that, um, I've had fish destroy it. I, I, yeah. I rarely do I even go with, unless I'm fishing, like we talked earlier about, you know, fishing the bottom pat, just like the weighted flies off the bottom. I'll maybe go down to 15 just so I, I, I can get them to sink a little faster. But if I'm fishing mount, you know, surface patterns or double deceivers or swimming jimmies, uh, I don't go out there with less than 20 pound fluorocarbon. Generally, Seaguar, you know, there's a, a good quality fluorocarbon. I start with a 40 foot butt section, then then maybe go down to like 26, then to 20, just okay. so I get that turnover a little bit. 
Yeah. I take and two things there about turning a flyover. You do need you need something a little heavier, especially if you got some weight on it. But dude, every cast I make at night feels like the perfect cast. There's like there's no. never a bad one. It may go ten foot, but to me, I'm throwing the whole fly line at night. <laughs> no. <laughs> but it's pretty it's pretty crazy and so this is this goes back to like we when we first started floating and we were trying to figure out what lines and what rods work best and what you know what leader systems work best and then uh it, did, it took me about two or three years to figure out that like i was uncomfortable going out here at nighttime with 15 pound test i've had experienced anglers from michigan pennsylvania well-known anglers and you know and lose lose and snap fish off 15 pound fluorocarbon yeah and so i mean it just give you these I and mean, obviously there's a fish that we never saw <laughs> but um <laughs> so i just uh and i i just i really i don't think like the diameter makes that much difference at night i think it's the signature of the pattern you know i, I think that obviously you know we, we, we all we want to show fish something that they're seeing whether you know like i said it's it's a a mouse or a, a small mink on the surface or a smaller trout up, you know, up feeding off the surface at night. You guys, you know, show them what they're seeing. Some that pushes, some that leaves a signature. Yeah. Right. Well, so we've talked, we've talked quite a bit about several different things here, but what do you think though? The, and I asked this of everybody. So what do you think the the one thing we haven't asked about five fishing for those trophy trout at night? Uh, that we haven't asked, that we should have asked. What do you think that is? Well, I think the first thing, and this is like after 20 years, the one thing I even like that I just, you know, I realize now is that, you know, my whole life I've underestimated how well these fish see and smell at night. And when I say smell, I'm not implying that you should use scented baits. <laughs> it's just that I, I, I really, you know, most of my life I've been fishing for trout since 1971, I guess. <laughs> my grandfather took me up to Northern PA, but, um, that's, that's really, I mean, I really, these are very, very efficient creatures. They're very, they're very in tuned to their environment. And it amazes me how they navigate in new moons where there's no light out there. And to put it into context, one night I was made up my girlfriend. I was living in Cotter. And um, so I just, I like folded out of the house. I just grabbed one rod out of the boat. It was a five weight that I'd been using that day on the North Fork. And I had a, uh, a size 18 zebra midge under about 20 inches on an indicator. And I walked down to Big Stream Park. And I was just casting because I was mad. And I wasn't expecting to catch anything. And, uh, so within an hour and a half, I probably caught four browns, you know, 18 to 20 inches on a new moon with a size 18 zebra midge. So that's really what got the ball rolling with, you know, the realization that I've underestimated these fish, what, what, their, what their sensory, what they see and what they smell at nighttime. So with that being said, uh, if, if you're, whether you're in a boat or wade fishing, uh, you know, silence is golden. <laughs> the less commotion you make, you know. The other thing that I really like to say is like, so when you talk about this, you know fly fishing at night, to people who fly fish during the day, 
it, it creates some animosity. I mean, I'm sure if you like fish, if any of y'all like fish, I'm sure you've heard it, seen it on social media. I would say that, you know, selecting the place to fly fish at night is pretty important. So, and, you know, there's some, some habitats that probably wouldn't be good fly fish at night at. Like some of the smaller, fragile habitats. Um, I, I would be very, you know, like I said, you have to overview your habitat, profile it. Um, one of the things I'm luck, that's luck, that we're lucky at here is that the White River is a massive habitat. I mean, we're at minimum flow right now, and it's 125, where I'm at, probably 125 yards wide with all kinds of structures and stuff like that. But I, I, just, I just feel like the smaller habitats are just a, a little bit more fragile. So there's certain places, like, I know I could be extremely successful catching large fish, but I don't think it's a good imprint to leave on the habitat. I want to I want to back up. You mentioned something, and this just triggered a thought in my mind. Would you rather, if you had your choice, would you rather fish on a full moon or a new moon? I would say that, here, it's, going back to feeding cycles, I think that, let's say, on the waxing moon, let's, let's say we're leaving a new moon. Let's say like last night was a new moon. Tonight, the next three nights, two of those will probably be good. The third night might be slow. And then the next three nights, you might have like one or two nights. You only have one night that's good, the next two slow. And, and that, kind of, that trend kind of continues as you enter the full moon phase, as the moon waxing. There's not as much, you know, nocturnal activity per night. And so as we approach the full moon, let's say you went out four nights before the full moon. Um, one night will probably be really, really good. The next night will be slow. And like maybe two nights, like you won't get to eat. You'll huh. be lucky to get to eat. And so, so, I mean, to encapsulate it, I would say like, you know, seven days the seven days in front of the new moon to the seven days after the new moon is probably like if you have, you know, you're going to spend a couple nights fishing that that's be the time to, to do it. But I would just, as you're, if you're around the full moon, like you'd have to fish like four nights to get like one good night because they can yeah. only shut down for so long. And right. you know, there's other, what we call like diurnal variances there's a lot of things that affect that whether it's dissolved oxygen uh ph levels yeah you right. know. yeah yeah i'm sure those do but, yeah for sure interesting i'm trying and what i'm doing here is is thinking through daytime fishing full moon seems to be a little slower during the day with a full yeah. moon so and i mean waxing versus waning waning seems to be a little better daytime uh, than waxing. So, and that, you know, ask me in, in six months, I may tell you a whole different story, but right now that's what it feels like. Well, I think it varies between species too. Yeah. You know, I think some, sometimes, you know, bass behave a little, a little behavior or behave a little bit differently. I know, uh, some of the saltwater species definitely <clears throat> behave differently, but here on this habitat, the full moon is not my friend. However, it's a really good float. And that's generally why I wind up fishing with my friends. Like we just like, like <laughs> other friends of God or, uh, you know, other guys from other areas. Uh, we'll just get out and float just a, cause like it's absolutely beautiful under the full moon yes. on the river. 
Absolutely. And so what we, you know, and I, I coined this phrase from, from one of the Michigan anglers. He said, you know, at times like that, we just go out to practice our casting and there may or may not be fishing ball. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, well, that's, think- that's what we tell ourselves to you know, get out and go into a situation <laughs> where you don't have, you know, you don't expect a lot of success, but every once in a while, the river will reward you, you know? Yeah. If you're not expecting a lot of success, that one fish feels really good. You know, and it may no. not be the biggest fish in the river that night, but, but it feels excellent. You know, you're like, oh, okay, I accomplished something tonight when I didn't feel like I would. And there's, there's something to be said for that. Sure. Yeah, we've gone out on a full moon and, uh, like I said, like cast on night, maybe get one fish, maybe get skunked. And like the next full moon rolls around, like, ah, I really don't want to go out. I'm like, okay, we'll, we'll just go out and float for the heck of it, you know, and we'll have a great night and stick a bunch of fish. And then I'll get all pumped up. I'll get like, all, you know, pumped up <laughs> for the next full moon and it's back down to, you know. And it's a dud. Yeah. <laughs> that but it happens during the daytime too you know maybe not to the extreme and you know going back to uh the full moon stuff you know just enjoying the solitude at nighttime is is worth the float all itself oh yeah you know and that's really i mean you know initially when i first started night fishing we started you know you know catching and releasing some really nice fish but after a couple years I, i there wasn't so much, much the fish that drew me to the river. It was the solitude and all the things that you, uh, that you see and you hear like coyotes working the banks and owls. I love owls and, uh, yeah. and raccoons and foxes. And like, and so that, going back to the full moon, that's really like, that's my motivation. You know, cause we, we, we have like a zillion owls along this river and uh, they're going to start hooting it up here pretty soon as mating season probably in the next couple of weeks. But, uh, I mean, they, they rattle the whole valley. It's something, but, you know, if you're a turkey hunter and you, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, and like the sounds of owls, man, this is the place to go. And, and they get the turkeys going too, especially like, mm, you know, late March. It's, those owls will start hooting. It's nothing but gobbling turkeys all night long. Mm, yeah. Well, turkey hunters lose their mind over that. Well, what do you say we close this show out there, John? Sounds good to me. It was a pleasure pleasure to be aboard. All right. Well, free, feel free to share this podcast with your friends and your fishing partners. Subscribe or follow so you'll be the first to know when an episode drops. If you find value in the work we're doing here and want to support it, drop by the Southeastern Fly store and simply make a purchase for a hat or a t-shirt. So who is our guest today on Southeastern Fly? He's known as a nighttime angler. Uh, you can find him at Straight Out of Cotter, Arkansas. Uh, you can also find him at Flies and Guides Fly Shop on the White and now the North Fork Rivers. And tonight, he is live from Newman's Lodge. John, really appreciate you stopping by. Thanks for having me, David. You just listened to John Holston on the Southeastern Fly Podcast. See you next time.